Chapter 22 of At the Time Appointed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. At the Time Appointed by A. Maynard Barbour. Chapter 22. The Fetters Broken. Early on the morning of the third day after Mr. Breton's arrival at camp, he and Darrell set forth for the pines. But little snow had fallen within the last two days, and the trip was made without much difficulty, though progress was slow. Late in the day, as they neared the pines, the clouds, which for hours had been more or less broken, suddenly dispersed, and the setting sun sank in a flood of gold and crimson light which gave promise of a glorious weather for the morrow. Arriving at the house, they found it filled with guests, invited to the wedding from different parts of the state, the rooms resounding with light badinage and laughter the very atmosphere charged with excitement as messengers came and went and servants hurried to and fro, busied with preparations for the following day. Kate herself hastened forward to meet them, a trifle pale but calm and wearing the faint, inscrutable smile which of late was becoming habitual with her. At sight of Darrell and his friend, however, her face lighted with the old-time sunny smile and her cheeks flushed with pleasure. She bestowed upon Mr. Britton the same affectionate greeting with which she had been accustomed to meet him since her childhood days. He was visibly affected, and though he returned her greeting, kissing her on brow and cheek, he was unable to speak. Her color deepened and her eyes grew luminous as she turned to welcome Darrell. But she only said, I'm inexpressibly glad that you came. It will be good to feel there is one amid all the crowd who knows. He knows also, Kathy, Darrell replied in low tones, indicating Mr. Britton with a slight motion of his head. Does he know all? she asked quickly. Yes, I thought you could have no objection. No, she answered after a brief pause. I'm glad that it is so. There was no opportunity for further speech. As Mr. Underwood came forward to welcome his old friend and Darrell, and they were hurried off to their rooms to prepare for dinner. Mr. Underwood was not a man to do things by halves, and the elaborate but informal dinner to which he and his guests sat down was all that could be desired as a gastronomic success. He himself, despite his brusque manners, was a genial host, and Walcott speedily ingratiated himself into the favor of the guests by his quiet, unobtrusive attentions, his punctilious courtesy to each and all alike. Darrell and his friend felt ill at ease and out of place amid the gaiety that filled the house that evening, and at an early hour they retired to their rooms. It is awful, Darrell exclaimed, as they stood for a moment together at the door of his room listening to the sounds of merriment from below. 
It is all so hollow, such a mockery. It seems like dancing over a hidden sepulchre. And we are to stand by tomorrow and witness this farce carried out to the final culmination, Mr. Britton commented in low tones. It is worse than a farce. It is a crime. My boy, how will you be able to stand it? He suddenly inquired. Darrell turned away abruptly. I could not stand it. I would not attempt it except that my presence will comfort and help her, he answered, and so they parted for the night. The following morning dawned clear and cloudless, the spotless unbroken expanse of snow gleaming in the sunlight as though strewn with myriads of jewels. It seemed as if the earth herself had donned her bridal array in honor of the occasion. An ideal wedding day was the universal exclamation, and such it was. The wedding was to take place at noon, a little more than an hour before the bridal party was to leave the house. Darrell was walking up and down the double libraries upstairs, whither he had been summoned by a note from Kate, begging him to await her there. His thoughts went back to that summer night less than six months gone, when he had waited her coming in those very rooms, not yet six months, and he seemed to have lived years since then. He recalled her as she appeared before him that night, in all the grace and witchery of lovely maidenhood, just opening into womanhood. How beautiful, how joyous she had been, without a thought of sorrow, and now... A faint sound like the breath of the wind through the leaves roused him, and Kate stood before him once more, Kate in her bridal robes, their shimmering folds trailing behind her like the gleaming foam in the wake of a ship on a moonlit sea, while her veil, like a filmy cloud, enveloped her from head to foot. There was a moment of silence in which Darrell studied the face before him, the same yet not the same as on that summer night. The childlike naivete, the charming piquancy, had given place to a sweet seriousness, but it was more tender, more womanly, more beautiful. She came a step nearer, and, raising her clasped hands, placed them within Darrell's. I felt that I must see you once more, John, she said, in the low, sweet tones that always thrilled his very soul. There is something I wish to say to you. If I can only make my meaning clear, and I feel sure you will understand me, I want to pledge to you, John, for time and for eternity, my heart's best and purest love. Though forced into this union with a man whom I can never love, yet I will be true as a wife. God knows I would not be otherwise. That is farthest from my thoughts. But I have learned much within the past few months, and I have learned that there is a love far above all passion and sensuality, a love tender as a wife's, pure as a mother's, and lasting as eternity itself. Such love I pledge you, John Darrell. Do you understand me? As she raised her eyes to his, it seemed to Darrell that he was looking into the face of one of the saints whom the old masters loved to portray centuries ago. So spiritual was it, so devoid of everything of earth. 
Kathy, darling, he said, clasping her hands tenderly. I do understand, and thank God, I believe I am able to reciprocate your love with one as chastened and pure. When I left the pines last fall, I did so because I could not any longer endure to be near you, loving you as I did. I felt in some blind, unreasoning way that it was wrong, and yet I knew that to cease to love you was an impossibility. But in the solitude of the mountains, God showed me a better way. He showed me the true meaning of those words. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Those words had always seemed to me austere and cold, as though they implied that our poor love would be superseded by higher attributes possessed by the angelic hosts of which we knew nothing. Now I know that they mean that our human love shall be refined from all the dross of earthly passion, purified and exalted above mortal conception. I prayed that my love for you might be in some such measure refined and purified, and I know that prayer has been answered. I pledge you that love, Kathy, a love that will never wrong you, even in thought, that you can trust in all the days to come as ready to defend or to protect you if necessary, and as always seeking your best and highest happiness. Thank you, John, she said, and bowed her head above their clasped hands for a moment. When she raised her head, her eyes were glistening. We need not be afraid or ashamed to acknowledge love such as ours, she said proudly, and with the assurance you have given me, I shall have strength and courage. Whatever may come, I must go, she added, lifting her face to his. I want your kiss now, John, rather than amid all the meaningless kisses that will be given me after the ceremony. Their lips met in a lingering kiss, then she silently withdrew from the room. As she crossed the hall, Walcott suddenly brushed past her breathlessly, without seeing her, and ran swiftly downstairs. His evident excitement caused her to pause for an instant. As she did, she heard him exclaim in a low, angry tone and with an oath, "'You dog! What brings you here? How dare you come here?' There came a low reply in Spanish, followed by a few quick, sharp words from Walcott in the same tongue, but which by their inflection Kate understood to be an exclamation and a question. Her curiosity aroused, she noiselessly descended to the first landing and, leaning over the balustrade, saw a small man with dark olive skin standing close to Walcott with whom he was talking excitedly. He spoke rapidly in Spanish. Kate caught only one word, Senora, as he handed a note to Walcott, at the same time pointing backward over his shoulder toward the entrance. Kate saw Walcott grow pale as he read the missive. Then, with a muttered curse, he started for the door, followed by the other. Quickly descending to the next landing, where there was an alcove window looking out upon the driveway, Kate could see a closed carriage standing before the entrance, and Walcott, 
holding the door partially open, talking with someone inside. The colloquy was brief, and, as Walcott stepped back from the carriage, the smaller man, who had been standing at a little distance, sprang in hastily. As he swung the door open for an instant, Kate had a glimpse of a woman on the rear seat, dressed in black and heavily veiled. As the man closed the door, Walcott stepped to the window for a word or two, then turned towards the house, and the carriage rolled rapidly down the driveway. Kate slowly ascended the stairs, listening for Walcott, who entered the house, but, instead of coming upstairs, passed through the lower hall, going directly to a private room of Mr. Underwood's, in which he received any who happened to call at the house on business. Kate went to her room, her pulse beating quickly. She felt intuitively that something was wrong, that there was revealed a phase of Walcott's personality which she and in her innocence had not considered, had not even suspected. She knew that her father believed him to be a moral man, and hitherto she had regarded the lack of affinity between herself and him as due to a sort of mental disparity, a lack of affiliation in thought and taste. Now the conviction flashed upon her that the disparity was a moral one. She recalled the sense of loathing with which she instinctively shrank from his touch. She understood it now, and within two hours she was to have married this man. Never! Passing a large mirror, she paused and looked at the reflection there. Was her soul, its purity and beauty symbolized by her very dress, to be united to that other soul in its grossness and deformity? Her cheek blanched with horror at the thought. No! That fair body should perish first, rather than soul or body ever be contaminated by his touch. Her decision was taken from that moment, and it was irrevocable. Nothing, not even her father's love or anger, his wishes or his commands, could turn her now, for, as he himself boasted, his own blood flowed within her veins. Swiftly she disrobed, tearing the veil in her haste and throwing the shimmering white garments to one side as though she hated the sight of them. Taking from her jeweled casket the engagement ring which had been laid aside for the wedding ceremony, she quickly shut it within its own case to be returned as early as possible to the giver. It seemed to burn her fingers like living fire. A few moments later her aunt entering her room, found her dressed in one of her favorite house gowns, a camel's hair of creamy white. She looked at Kate, then at the discarded robes on the couch nearby, and stopped speechless for an instant, then stammered, Catherine, child, what does this mean? It means, Auntie, said Kate, putting her arms about her aunt's neck, that there will be no wedding and no bride today. Then looking her straight in the eyes, she added, Really, Auntie, deep down in your heart, aren't you glad of it? Mrs. Dean gasped, then replied slowly, Yes, it will make me very glad if you do not have to marry that man. But, Catherine, I don't understand. 
What will your father say? Before Kate could reply, there was a heavy knock at the door, which Mrs. Dean answered. She came back looking rather frightened. Your father wishes to see you, Catherine, in your library. Something must have happened. He looks excited and worried. I don't know what he'll say to you in that dress. I'm not afraid, Kate, replied brightly. A moment later she entered the room where less than half an hour before she had left Darrell. Mr. Underwood was walking up and down. As Kate entered, he turned towards her with a look of solicitude, which quickly changed to one of surprise tinged with anger. What is the meaning of this? he demanded, looking at his watch. It is within an hour of time set for your wedding. You don't look much like a bride. Do you expect to be married in that dress? I am not to be married today, Papa, nor any other day to Mr. Walcott, Kate answered calmly. What? he exclaimed, scarcely comprehending the full import of her words. Isn't that a matter bad enough as it is without your making it worse by any foolish talk or actions? I don't understand you, Papa. To what do you refer? Why, Mr. Walcott has been called out of town by news that his father is lying at the point of death. It is doubtful whether he will live till his son can reach him. He has to take the first train south which leaves within half an hour. Otherwise, he would have waited for the ceremony to be performed. Did he tell you that? Kate asked with intense scorn. Certainly, and he left his farewells for you, as he hadn't time even to stop to see you. It is well that he didn't attempt it, Kate replied with spirit. I would have told him to his face that he lied. What do you mean by such language? her father demanded angrily. Do you doubt his word to me? I haven't a doubt that he was called away suddenly, but I saw him when he received the message, and he didn't appear like a man called by sickness. He was terribly excited. So excited he did not even see me when he passed me, and he was angry, for he cursed both the message and the man who brought it. Excited? Naturally. He was excited in talking with me, and his anger, no doubt, was over the postponement of the wedding. You show yourself very foolish in getting angry in turn. This is a devilishly awkward affair, though, thank heaven, there is no disgrace or scandal attached to it, and we must make the best we can of it. I have already sent messengers to the church to disperse the guests as they arrive, and have also sent a statement of the facts to the different papers, so there will be no garbled accounts or misstatements tomorrow morning. Father, said Kate, drawing herself up with new dignity as he paused, I want you to understand that this is no childish anger or pique on my part. I have not told all that I saw, nor is it necessary at present. But I saw enough with that my eyes are open to his real character. I want you to understand that I will never marry him. I will die first. Her father's face grew dark with anger at her words but the eyes looking fearlessly into his own never quailed. Perhaps he recognized his own spirit, for he checked the wrathful words he was about to speak 
and merely inquired, "'Are you going to make a fool of yourself "'and involve this affair in a scandal, "'or will you allow it to pass quietly "'and with no unpleasant notoriety? "'You can dispose of it amongst outsiders as you please, Papa, "'but I want you to understand my decision in this matter "'and that it is irrevocable. "'Until you come to your senses,' he retorted, and left the room. With comparatively little excitement, the guests dispersed, and no one, not even Darrell or Mr. Britton, knew aught beyond the statement made by Mr. Underwood. Some particular friends of Kate's living in a remote part of the state, thinking it might be rather embarrassing for her to remain in Ophir, invited her to their home for two or three months, and she, realizing that she had incurred her father's displeasure, gladly accepted. The next morning found Darrell on his way to the camp, looking longingly forward to his busy life amid the mountains, and firmly believing that it would be many a day before he saw the pines. End of chapter 22